Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Travis Miller. He is VP of Operations for the Miller Resource Group, which is part of the MRI network. Some of you may remember that I interviewed Joe Mullings, who's the chairman of that, and they specialize in recruiting for the food and beverage manufacturing market. Welcome, Travis. Thanks, Marcus. Appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to it. So, Travis, the, the theme of today's conversation is that you must hire what you can't train. And I know this is a mantra that for the last 15 years uh, in recruitment, you've been living. Tell me this. Can you give some specific examples of the positive impact that hiring to vision, as opposed to just fulfilling the immediate need to have someone who's capable of fulfilling a task, can have on a business? I'm going to use my company as an example, Marcus, because we try and live and breathe this every single day. Look at our team. We're brag a little bit, but we've been incredibly successful the last five years or so, which is right about How the time. How are you measuring that? Growth, retention, and the success of our people. I mean, we have three of the top 15 recruiters in all of MRI network. So three of the top, top 15 out of there's currently 1,200 members in MRI network. And not a single one of those three people had any experience in recruiting before they joined Miller Resource Group. Our most successful person over the last five years who is on track to be, he's going to generate a million dollars in revenue this year by himself, Marcus. And before he came to Miller Resource Group, he sold business supplies and copier equipment for uh, uh, six or seven months. And before that, he'd been a pastor for 12 years. And what's the industry average? Up to 20. Right. So that's about four, 420% mm-hmm. above the industry average. Mm-hmm. And what about the other two? How are they performing against industry average? They were about three times, uh, three times industry average. They were both um, north of 600 uh, last year. Okay. And um, one was she did... Um, She was a director of admissions for an online college for a while. And before that, she was a grade school teacher. And one was lead generation for consulting services. He's actually probably the the most direct correlation. But again, it's anytime we've tried to hire a perfect resume, someone with extensive experience in recruiting and business development for executive search, it almost never turns out well. Again, this mirrors my own experience. And for the last 35 years, I've been in sales and I've seen company after company after company recruit and their job adverts, their job specifications are must have seven years experience selling enterprise solutions into finance and all of this kind of gubbins. To be perfectly honest, I've worked in 500 different segments of the market It's never taken me more than six conversations to understand enough of the language to be able to sound uh, very credible. And I think a theme that I'm picking up is that when you recruit people for their fit with your vision and they bring that intangible or that untrainable, those untrainable qualities, you can train that stuff. I remember in my conversation with Joe, and he said he would look for someone with uh, moderate competence, but high trust. So 
again, it, it depends on the culture of your business. But if your business is not a high trust business, then chances are you will be suffering from churn and turnover. You'll be suffering from absenteeism, sickness. You'll suffer from burnout. Now, if we look at MRI as a business, what level of burnout do you have? Really high. MRI as a whole, and frankly, the recruiting industry as a whole has, has about a 50% turnover within the first year. Right. The first year is, it's hard, man. It is hard, Marcus. I think a lot of companies, the big problem is that trust isn't there. And I think it's reciprocated. I think yeah, in a lot of recruiting, staffing, and similar sales type industries, there's not a trust that somebody new is going to be able to learn what they don't know. They're not going to be able to be trained to develop the, the areas where they're short. And there's not a trust by the new employee that their new company is going to give them the, the time, the energy, and the resources to be able to figure the damn thing out. And so the first business is hard. I mean, Marcus, you know, how many calls do you get from recruiters every day or every week? Certainly in previous roles, many. I suspect now that I've taken on CRO roles, I'll be inundated. I mean, at the moment, it's lead generation and marketing automation. But recruiters, it's only a matter of time. The biggest complaint about recruiters is that people will hear from a recruiter once and they'll never hear from them again. And the second biggest complaint is people get so many damn calls from recruiters. And that's why the first year in this business is, is so hard is because no matter what you do, it's impo almost impossible to not be just another recruiter. But th th that's, that comes down to being irrelevant and just being an interruption. Mm -hmm. um, virtually every recruitment call um, that uh, anyone ever receives is, um, hi, I'm XYZ from ABC company. Uh, we're a recruiter. Do you have any vacancies? And that delivers no value. You know, rec recruitment is a tough job. And um, I, I like recruiters. I like recruiting recruiters because they're tough. If they've survived two, three years, they've developed a thick skin and a lot of scar tissue. And th those are qualities that you need to be resilient. But unless you are bringing value to the prospect or the customer, you have no business making that call. You have no business cluttering up their inbox with your shitty emails. So what are the qualities that you can't train? There's a lot of them. Uh, you got to pick the ones that are, that are important to you and to your company. Uh, for us, the core qualities that we can't train, that if they're not there, it just doesn't matter. Integrity is incredibly important to us. If somebody's willing to cut corners, fib, try and ruse call gatekeepers or any of that, that shit, Marcus, then it's, that's not for us. Too many recruiters give this business a bad name and we're not going to be a part of that. We need people that are dedicated, not necessarily dedicated to, to us, but more dedicated to themselves, dedicated to being better, dedicated to learning. That's not there. We, we can't train it. Looking for people that have empathy. Empathy is incredibly important in this business. And it's so so hard to teach. You can't teach it. You just can't. Somebody has it or they don't. And you, I think you can teach how to show empathy and how to utilize it. But if it's not that core in their gut, then, then to try and teach it is, is, is stupid. We need people who are 
authentically themselves that there's so much to learn. And like you said, you need that thick skin to get through this business. And so people need to be comfortable being authentically themselves. That's important because we need people. We're trying to find people who are enhancing our culture. And the only way to do that is to find people who are by being themselves enhancing the culture. And we're a pretty small shop, uh, about 20 people working here. And so we need people that are willing to work together. So if all of those things are there, then I still can't guarantee success. I mean, I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm not, we're not perfect at hiring. We've still, we still have turnover within the first year, but if all of those things are there, the potential for success is there. But if any one of those things isn't there, then there's no way success is going to be there. Certainly from a sales perspective, I build on what uh, Travis has just said. I think they need to have a fire, a passion about them and uh, to have a purpose they're doing it for more than just the money and the basic salary. They want to succeed without arrogance. They expect to succeed. And that confidence comes through in terms of their authenticity, their internal locus of control. You don't hear a bunch of excuses and blame for the extrinsic factors, the market, the economy, COVID, our, um, our marketing, our management, our pricing. They want the business to succeed, not just succeed themselves. It's not all about them. And they understand intrinsically, whether they can articulate it or not, that uh, they have rights. They're selling like partners. They're thinking about the end user, the candidate, uh, the hiring manager, the customer, whoever is using the product or the service. And they think as them. They don't think about them. They think as them. They're strong enough to be able to give and get a no. They understand that prospecting is, you prospect for choice. If you have five prospects in the pipeline for every deal you need to get over the line, you can say no confidently. You can give a no, you can get a no, and you don't take it personally. You're not attached. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. We have, like almost every recruiting office, in the, on the planet, we have a, a chipboard when we're in the office up in the kitchen to measure interviews and job orders and new clients. Um, we have a black chip that we put up when we turn down a customer because it's, it's, it I think it's gold. <laughs> well, I, 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 th- it's like in soccer, football, you win on goal difference. And if you get an early qualified no, that's a win. That's like saving a goal. And I think t- too few salespeople have that mentality. And I'll come back to something uh, you touched on right at the beginning. Uh, But I think they have a determination and an assertiveness without aggression. They understand that it's about creating a win-win or no deal type of relationship. And they play the long game. You you, You said hire for the vision, not the immediate need. But I think you prospect for the future. When you're prospecting, you should be prospecting for a customer who's going to be a customer 5, 10, 15 years down the road, not to fulfill your immediate quota requirement for this month or this quarter. They want it, but they don't need it. So they can stay objective. They don't take rejection personally. They know it's just business. And they relish the challenge. And one of my favorite things is selling past no. For the last 17, 18 years, most of my income, at least 80%, has come after someone has said no to me. Hmm. Now, that means my prospecting requirement is a fraction 
of everybody else's. You know, if if I have five decent prospects, chances are three or four of those will become customers. And I think conceptually, this is really important as well. How you see yourself conceptually is projected out and gets reflected back. And one of the things that I see in recruitment and in broader sales is a lot of people are embarrassed to have the job title of salesperson or recruitment consultant. And you need to see what you do as meaningful, important work. It's important because the work that we do literally transforms a business's future. I have a recruitment client, and uh, he made a placement of a CFO uh, who made them $350 million. Now, whatever fee he charged, it was nowhere near enough. But if you're thinking that you're a body shop, and that's what you sell, when I was in recruitment, I, I finally got it in my last two years, that you don't sell recruitment. What you do is you sell a solution to a business problem, and it happens to be that people do, uh, do the this, uh, this solving. That's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, and then too many, too many recruiters try and differentiate themselves by calling up a company and saying, I got a guy, he's going to change your world. He's absolutely perfect for your company. If you talk to him, you'd love him, you'd love him, you'd hire him. No question. This guy is amazing. And that's stupid. I don't know this company. I don't know their spot in the industry. I don't know what's going on. Maybe if I'm if I'm halfway decent in this business, I've I've talked to this person before. I know what their upcoming needs are probably going to be, but not enough recruiters call up companies and say, I don't know you, or it's been a long time since we've talked, but I know your company and I know the industry well. And I think, I think I have somebody who could make a significant difference to a company similar to yours, but I want to understand you. I want to understand where you're coming from. What's the landscape of your organization look like now over the next five to 10 years? Because if it's anything like I think it might be, this person could have a significant impact in helping you achieve your vision. The problem is people, they're a body shop, they're selling bodies. And it's tough to have that conversation too, because a lot of companies don't know, they have no idea what their world's going to look like in five to 10 years. And so they need a body shop. They need somebody who can come in and fill an immediate need. They're bleeding and they need a tourniquet. But I think that's why we're able to hire the way we are is because we're fortunate that we rarely have a need right now. We need this specific skill set to stop the bleeding. We have a long-term vision and we're able to hire people and give them the freedom to fail. Okay, but this speaks to another cultural shift in the relationship between employer and recruiter. You touched on one thing, which is that candidates employers need to be able to clearly articulate the vision of the business in order that the candidate can see what their part is in delivering and executing that vision when they are in role. But I think it also goes deeper than that. I'm a keen advocate of finding recruiters with whom you can form a genuine partnership. And I'm a big advocate that you should pay them a regular retainer whether you are hiring or not, so that they can help you build your bench for senior executive and key positions. Maybe you pay them a thousand a month, whatever it is, but 
if you can get five rock solid candidates on the bench, so when your chief marketing officer gets hit by the number 73 bus, it will take you no longer than whatever their notice period is to fill the vacancy. You don't have to go out and spend 16 weeks going through the recruitment process and then compromise on the best of what's available. You fill the bench with A players or good B-plus players who have all of those untrainable qualities, knowing that, uh, and particularly now that most of us are going to be recruiting millennials or Gen Zs, who want experiences, they want growth, they want to learn. They are less uh, money motivated than the Gordon Gecko generation that I grew up in. And even those people who say that they are money motivated, very, very few of them really are. It's a crappy response to a bad interview question. What are you motivated by? I'm motivated by money. Those sorts of people who really are are soulless sharks. You look into the black pit of their eyes and you can't see any humanity in there. People want money in order to have choices. One of my favorite questions is, what is it that you want your career to uh, deliver to you in life? It's a good one. And so few people uh, look at uh, their role as a manager to be able to help people achieve the things that motivate them. Um, And they don't understand motivation because they think about filling a vacancy and putting a, a warm body on a seat. One of my favorite clients over the last 20 years was a guy, a guy called Jim Harvey. Um, and we were having a conversation about a particularly troublesome member of the team. And um, he came up with this outstanding question. It's not very PC, and it's probably one that you don't want to put to HR. Uh, but the question is this, is he better than an empty chair? <laughs> and actually, on balance, we decided this particular person wasn't. We um, you know, moved him out of the business. We did it fairly. But when he left, there was a 30% increase in the territory with no one in that patch. That's how much he was costing the business by being in post because they hired for a task and what they needed was someone who actually gave a damn about the customer, who would play the long game, who would partner with the customer and had that conversation about, look, I don't know exactly what it is that you're looking for. It's been a while. So let's sit down and talk me through your vision. What is it you're trying to achieve over the next five years, three years, one year? For that to be possible, what needs to change? What what is it you need us to be able to deliver so that we can help you achieve your vision? Because at the end of the day, a body is a body, but someone who can help you achieve your vision, that's priceless. And I think that's that's one of the hardest parts, Marcus, is to have that conversation. Companies got to know it. And I don't think enough do. I don't think enough sit down and say, where do we want our company to go? What do we want it to look like? Maybe they know next year. Maybe they've done some planning around that. But not enough have looked at three years, five years, 10 years. What's my retirement speech? What does the company look like when I am no longer a part of it? And without that, how do you, how do you not just hire tasks? How do you hire somebody to help you achieve your vision when you don't have any idea what it looks like? When the vision is so murky and foggy and unclear, then 
the exercise you're talking about of always interviewing, always be interviewing, always have a bench of talent that is interested in you, your company, and your vision. Without the vision, you can't do it. You're not going to be able to hire great people because without being able to articulate that vision, you can't, I don't want to say, no, I do. I want to say sell. You can't sell the opportunity to someone about their role in helping you achieve that vision. And that's where I think the best people get really excited about their career. Um, You're talking a little bit about uh, millennials and Gen Z. And uh, if I'm shifting topics too much here, steer me back. We're where we want to be. All right. Because you hear so much talk about the gig economy and that millennials, Gen Z, the, the gig economy is the new wave. And I think it's bullshit. I think that people are willing to change jobs so frequently because companies aren't telling them what their role is going to play in the future of the company, what they're going to achieve. And people my age and younger, we want to be part of something. We're Gen Z and millennials, they are a, they are. A, passionate group of bright and talented individuals and companies, too many companies are led by people with the Gordon Gecko mindset of our vision is to make as much freaking money as possible. And this, and this speaks to when they have that one year plan, it's basically a bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet Yeah, and you're paying homage to the church of finance. What you are not doing is aligning yourself and recruiting people, not only who can buy into your vision, but share your values. And this then speaks to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm currently recruiting a sales team for one of my clients. And this year I'll be recruiting three sales teams. And one of the things that we've intentionally done, it is in our mission that we become a destination employer. Now, a destination employer, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, is an employer that people are queuing up to come and join because they share the vision, they share the values, and they feel that this is a home for them where they can develop. We're going through this recruitment process, and it is incredibly rigorous and tough for the candidates. You know, it's four interviews. Every interview, there are exercises that they need to do. And as part of that destination employer mission, uh, we pay the candidates, instead of getting them to go away and do free consultancy and do uh, account mapping and strategic analysis of a, a marketplace, we actually pay them a day rate for doing that work because it's only fair to do that. Now, every single step, we built in a training component. Now, these are entry-level sales roles, but we'll do the same for veteran-level uh, sales roles as well, where we will teach them certain tactics and behaviors. And we will look for evidence that they have taken that training on board and applied it prior to even beginning the next interview. And we've gone through a a recruitment process and we've whittled it down to one final candidate who I'm interviewing this afternoon. And at the beginning of every single meeting, she does a glorious upfront contract the hairs on the back of my neck stand up each time I listen to her. Now, I don't even know whether I'm going to hire her yet, but I'm excited because she's taken the direction and she's implemented it. And under pressure, she responds with grace and charm 
The other candidates, they didn't. They crumbled under the pressure because we need to recruit people who can cope with the pressure and do so gracefully. So uh, we've had them do research into the marketplace, into companies, into the competition. And yeah, some of them were a bit of a bloodbath, but I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to see whether they would take the direction and then they would learn from it each time. And uh, this particular lady is just a joy. I want her to uh, be successful, but I have to remember I cannot be attached to the outcome. So I've got metrics in there that allow me to stay objective. And by going through that process, right at the outset of um, when we make the offer, then what we will be doing is asking her, so where do you want your career to take you? Do you have any idea? Do you want to develop your trajectory in sales? Do you want to move into management? Do you want to move into partnership management? And explaining what the different options are. Now, it may be too soon for her to know, but I want her to realize that those five routes uh, to career development, being um, you know, a senior SDR or a manager in that, uh, being a, uh, an account executive uh, and a senior salesperson, moving into enterprise sales, being a manager, uh, being a channel manager, all moving into customer success are all options open to her. Now, she has to earn her apprenticeship and reach milestones, and we ex- will be explaining the uh, onboarding process. Um, and I, you know, I've, I'm blessed that through the podcast, I've been able to learn some of these best practices. Mm. But th- this recruitment process, um, it's incredibly satisfying uh, to see someone make it through every step and grow. And her evolution, as, as she's gone through this process, you can see it. Her confidence has built and her skill level. And even if she doesn't choose to take the job, if we offer it, she will be better equipped to go somewhere else, which means we now have an advocate. And I, I think that, that, that's been a really powerful lesson for me. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. And I think, I think people should embrace difficult interviews. They should relish it because if they're, and I'm not talking about difficult for the sake of difficulty. I mean, you see those interviews that are, you know, seven step interview process with personality and performance assessments and making all the tests, making sure people are smart enough. I can't think of the name of the test. What's the test the football players take? Anyway, I apparently wouldn't pass it, but there's difficult for the sake of difficult. But what you're talking about, I love that. It's, it's purposefully difficult to not only for so that the company can understand who the absolute best person is to help them in the long term, but you're really giving the candidate the opportunity to understand if the job is right for them and is does it align with their vision for the future. You know, I, I think an insanely unnecessarily difficult interview process is just as bad as a quick and meaningless interview process. And this, I love that. And you said you're paying the candidates for the interview process, for the work that they're doing during the interview process. Yeah, when they do a project. So we had them do a competitor analysis. We had them map out a prospect. So the cast of characters and their financials and all of that stuff. Doing a strategic analysis of a segment of the market that we're going after. Now, yeah, it's it's not a lot of money, but it, it's the it's the message that it sends. Yeah, and we get something of value out of it. Well, we may do. I mean, it may be a terrible um, a bit of research, 
but it's only fair to do that. And the, the net result of it, from our perspective as well, is how much we have learned about the candidate as a human being, what they're really going to be like um, when they're on payroll, because how they respond or react. We had a couple of candidates who reacted very badly when we asked them, uh, with very short timescales, to do a project. And the idea was to see, you know, how do they respond? I, I would have been fine if, um, in one case, uh, the candidate came back and said, you know, with all my other commitments, I haven't been able to do that. Why don't we reschedule? And I would have been absolutely cool with that. Mm-hmm. Because that's the real world. That's authentic. But getting arsy about it, that doesn't wash. <laughs> yeah? Because that tells me that they're brittle. Uh-huh. And there's a sense of entitlement. And oh, one that's... thing I don't want is a sense of entitlement. That's the other thing to build into the recruitment process. Be really clear about what your red flag indicators are. And entitlement is right at the top of mind. That's the number one reason that the candidate will get rejected. That's a good one. For me, the, the, the big red flag is, and they probably go hand in hand in a strange way, but uh, if somebody's not curious, yeah. if that's the big one for me, is if somebody's not asking questions, if they're not genuinely curious, if they don't want to know a lot about everything, then to me, that shows a sense of entitlement. It shows a lack of empathy and obviously shows a lack of curiosity. And all three of those things are so, so important, Marcus. And yeah, I love that. Uh, I'm going to steal this for sure. sure. I don't know how I'm going to implement it, but I love it. If you want to talk it through another time, then I'd be delighted to share it with you. Because I I want to, and again, the price you have to pay is that as you uh, develop it and improve it, you have to give that back to me. (laughs) This will only get better. I mean, this is a work in progress. It's the first time I've done it. But this is decades of seeing piss poor recruitment and uh, using candidates as fodder. And that's the wrong thing to do. And in all honesty, I would rather make a false positive than a false negative. uh, Sorry, a false negative rather than a false positive decision. I would rather not hire someone who is good than hire someone who interviews like James Bond and turns into Mr. Bean. Uh (laughs) What I absolutely don't want is people to come into this with their eyes half open or closed. I mean, that that's this is a starting point because then once uh, they've agreed to take the job, there is a pre onboarding process. There's an onboarding process. That's 150 days of getting them set up to succeed with clear must-haves, nice-to-haves, and red flags. And the onboarding process covers what do they need to know by when do they need to know it? Where can they find the resources they need? How will it be measured? To what standard? What are the red flags and what are the consequences of non-performance? And how do we escalate? Mm -hmm. And that way, there are no surprises. And everybody knows all the way along precisely what it is that's required and what will get them to be terminated. As part of that process, then we're also going to be uh, implementing a career pathing program. So these are the milestones over the first 120 days in post. But then you've got six months, nine months, 12 months, 15 and 18 months. And the idea is that we then um, we recruit more people we have them, as soon as possible, mentoring the next batch of people. So they will be uh, responsible for um, being shadowed, 
for coaching, for being the first port of call when they have to escalate with the rule of three before me. So before you ask for help, you need to have tried to solve the problem yourself in three different ways and then come with evidence that you have done that and uh, identify why it didn't work. And then one question to the person who uh, is coaching them as to so that uh, you can work together on helping solve the problem. But that's done through coaching, not through telling. So we're teaching these, uh, these new salespeople how to coach, how to manage. Eventually, they'll be running the sales uh, teams, the daily huddles together. They'll be forecasting. And so by the time they move into management, they've already done the job for 12, 18 months. They've learned their craft. They've been apprenticed. That's, that's what we're trying to do in terms of creating that destination employer brand. I like that, that timeline with, with clear roadmap developments because we've fallen into this trap ourselves in the past, the trap of taking your best salespeople and because they're good at sales, making them managers <laughs> with, with no kind of management training, coaching, or leadership. And I'll, I'll admit it's, it's, it's one of... Something that I I know that we need to improve on is um, teaching the teachers. Well, the the SRC did a research paper on the state of sales management in January uh, 2020. And the finding from that was 96% of sales managers are not fit for purpose. Precisely for the reason you've just described. You end up getting a double whammy. You lose a good salesperson, you gain a ship manager, who then negatively impacts five, six, ten other salespeople. And that then drives turnover because their management style is do what was done to them. Uh, they don't know how to train. They don't know how to coach. Um, they probably don't even know how they prospect. They can't educate other people to do it. And that's why we have such a dearth of quality. And there, there's this uh, race to using automation and avoidance behaviors. Marketing automation applied with precision and accuracy delivers effectiveness. But what I'm seeing across the board is effectiveness being sacrificed for efficiency. That's why, do you know 98.81% of all adverts on Facebook, Google, get one click or less? That's 4.2 quadrillion adverts a year that just bother people. Uh, remarketing, you know, you know, re-advertising, you know, you look up, um, I don't know, a Pentax camera and you decide you're not going to buy a Pentax camera. And then for the next three weeks, you get tormented with adverts about shitty Pentax cameras that you don't want. I'm sure the one that pisses me off is when I finally buy the damn thing and I still get advertisements yeah. for the next two uh, months. Absolutely. Well, they have a 0.38% effectiveness rate. Click wow. Well, that's click-throughs. That isn't people who buy. That's just click-throughs. And this is where I think we need to really look at how we measure things. In recruitment, what we should be measuring is longevity of the placement. Are they still there two, three, four, five years later? Mm-hmm. To me, as a hiring manager, that is a metric that will, co- that will capture my attention. Don't care how many people are on your database. Really don't care. All that tells me is you spent a load of money getting lots of non-prospects. Yeah, and frankly, database size, who cares anymore? Everybody's got the same database. 
Yeah. The world is the day. Anybody can find anybody. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the problem. And, but the problem is who's going to reach out to all those people. And we're coming full circle here, Marcus, you know, there's absolutely can't do the job, might be able to do the job. Who's going to take the time to reach out to all of the people who might be able to do the job and who's going to be able to do a good job of articulating the company's story, a good job of letting people know what the vision for the future is. And if they join this company, what is the potential for what your role in the future of that industry looks like? And not the, the shitty Facebook version of recruiting, which is new opportunity. Come do, come perform this task that you have experience performing before. That's, that's what so much recruiting is, is it's the, the crappy Facebook, Facebook ad version of here's a job performing a task. Do you want to do this task that you have experience doing? I'm in the middle and I don't mind uh, telling people this because I think it's really important. I want people to tear it apart. So the idea is uh, I've uh, found a company that has a technology, very, very sophisticated analytics tool that allows you to identify um, the message that your ideal customer needs to receive in order to buy. And we're applying this in the context of recruitment. And then using a very precise account-based marketing technology so that you can pinpoint the specific individual that you need to serve up the advert for the job and to identify uh, using another technology precisely which consultant or which manager should make that call to the individual once you've seen that they've taken they've clicked through on that advert in order to ensure that you have the highest probability of creating a meaningful conversation because i think what's missing at the moment in sales in marketing and recruitment is the human element we have dehumanized the whole process and it's become a factory a conveyor belt and to my mind that type of precision focused recruitment will attract the people who will buy into your vision and who will help you to execute it and not only will they help you but they will augment and improve and this is i think the fundamentally important part because it will allow us to attract a more diverse type of employee and this is one of the really interesting deficiencies is that most hiring managers recruit in their own image only weaker and organizations that build diverse teams massively outperform teams that are not diverse they can be of every hue and color but if they've all been educated at oxford reading ppe then you're just hiring people in your own image so you need people different genders different ages different socioeconomic backgrounds different histories and different outlooks so that you get the full picture and you have infinite flexibility. But most organizations that I see, they don't think like that because then they, first of all, they don't have a vision. And secondly, they're not willing to make that long-term investment because this is really hard. It's tough. Yep. Your message of diversity is, is so spot on and it's the diversity of ideas. It's, back to what we were talking about earlier it's enhancing your culture not matching it if everybody looks like me has the same ideas that i have has the same worldview that i have the company's never going to grow it's never going to grow we're never going to we're never going to be something special we're never going to be able to help companies be something special because i'm not that smart 
I'm not that bright. I need, we need people that can, can help me. And people that are significantly smarter than me, I'm smarter than, than them in some areas too. And I can help them and we can help each other when we're, when we're focused on hiring and focused on finding people who can get excited about the vision that we're, tr- we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to accomplish, then you can find those people with the diversity of ideas to help you do it. And so I'm down on my knees begging companies to take the time to understand and be able to try and articulate what you want to accomplish, not the dollars you want to earn next year. Because if that's all it's about, then you're going to, then just hire people to do the task that you need to do right now. They'll make you some money. It's fine. But then you're going to get that churn. And that's the really important part of all of this. It's all well and good hiring people who come from diverse backgrounds. But uh, an interview uh, that I'm publishing either this week or next is with a really fascinating uh, lady. And they work, uh, they're a recruitment company called Rare Recruitment. And what they do is they place people from ethnic backgrounds into city law firms. And so uh, Magic Circle and Silver Circle. So these are the top 50, 100 law firms. But the problem that many of those firms have is they can hire them, but they can't keep them because they don't feel like they're necessarily part of it or they don't have the career opportunities that they otherwise would because of intrinsic bias and so forth. And so this requires us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we really inclusive? And because again, I think, Managers have five functions. Hire the best people, and that is difficult. It takes time, patience, and a lot of effort. And a manager's equivalent of prospecting for new business is prospecting for the bench. Then get the best out of them. That means set, setting expectations clearly, proper pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, mentoring, accountability with consequence, measurement making sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And as a manager, you have to derive your greatest sense of satisfaction from seeing others succeed and helping them meet their full potential, helping them clear roadblocks that they can't on their own and uh, helping protect them from acts of idiocy from you and senior management. And then, and this I learned from a guy called Ian Dodds, who turned around hundreds of factories over the years in his career, and it's managed inclusively. Everybody needs a voice. All human beings, I learned this from one of my mentors, Mark Galston, all human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and be understood. And if you don't allow people that voice, then you don't end up with highly engaged employees. And the research that was done on the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016 Companies with highly engaged employees outperformed everybody else in the S&P 500 in the following ways. 430% higher profit per employee, 290% higher revenue per employee, 40% lower churn, 20% higher productivity, and over 300% annual share uh, value growth um, year on year over a six-year period. Now, If you are a hard-nosed, soulless, bloodless capitalist, it's not fluffy to do this stuff. It's good business. (laughs) Yep, right on. But it's hard. It it really is hard. So coming back to that um, topic of hiring for what you can't train, let's look at values. 
I interviewed a chap called David Hensel, and he's got five companies, all doing incredibly well, hundreds of employees in each of them. And one of the things uh, he said, which I found really powerful, is that a decision is always run through their values. And if it doesn't meet the values, it's instantly rejected. And if it is, then it's given consideration. So talk to me about the importance of values in the recruitment process and within culture. I think it might be the most important thing because without somebody being able to, well, it starts at the top. I think the values are incredibly important and might be the most important thing. And it starts from the top. It starts with leadership because without those values, then again, all you're hiring is task-oriented people, people to, um, to perform a task, to achieve a desired outcome, which is usually make more money. But if you're able to understand and articulate the vision, a big part of that vision is how you want to achieve it. And that's where the values come in. And then you can, you can go out and you can find the two buckets. Absolutely can't do the job, might be able to do the job. Then you can focus on the people who have the values um, that are important to you, whatever they may be, the values that are important to achieving your vision. And if that's your focus, that's the only way you're going to find the people who are on board with you in achieving their vision. They're passionate about it. I was listening to a podcast you did a little while ago where you said, it's impossible to motivate people. And I thought about that a lot. And you might be right, but you can find, you might not be able to motivate people, but you can, I'm positive that you can find people who have the motivation to help you accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And if all you're focused on is hiring tasks, then tasks it is. But to find, to search for people who have the values and ability to help you achieve your vision, they'll then have, intrinsically have the motivation to help you succeed. Well, on that note, exactly right. Um, So as the final stage before the final interview, we've now implemented a set of profiles. And one of those uh, looks at motivational mapping because uh, you have relationship motivators, achievement motivators, and growth motivators. And people who are focused on relationship have a tendency to look backwards. People who are focused on achievement tend to be very focused on the here and now. And people with growth motivators tend to be uh, forward thinking. They're, They're motivated to look into the future. And if you don't understand someone's individual motivation, you can't coach them effectively. So are they focused on security, stability? Are they focused on a sense of friendship and belonging? Are they focused on recognition and social esteem? Are they focused on seeking power and influence, control, uh, money? Do they want material things? Are they looking for knowledge? Are they looking for mastery? Are they looking for innovation and change? Uh, You notice my tone changed there. Are they looking for freedom and independence? Are they looking for meaning? Now, if you understand an individual's personal motivation before you hire them, then you can tailor your coaching and you can also design compensation, the variable compensation element, to feed that. Because it may not be that they want more money. They want training or they want adventure. 
one of my clients years ago, he had a guy who loved to travel. So his bonus wasn't cash. It was a trip to Jordan to see Petra. Another guy in the team uh, loved off-roading. So his company car, when he hit his quota, became a Land Rover. Now, you know, if you can tailor your coaching and your compensation to feed an individual's motivation, then you're also feeding the second function of management, which is to get the best out of people. Because people come to work for their reasons. They do things for their reasons, not yours, and not the company's reasons. So if you haven't found that alignment, then you have a problem. But if you found that alignment and then you mismanage their motivation, then you're going to find that you're disappointed. And that's your fault as the manager. It's not theirs. Mm-hmm. Most problems are management issues, but it's the person, you know, it's the employee that gets it in the neck and gets fired. And in terms of learning and training, it's a teaching disability, not a learning disability. As a trainer, I, ha- I had to learn how to deliver the information in such a way that the other person could absorb it and implement it. That was my responsibility. Now, they had to then implement it. But it goes back to being hard, Marcus. It's, it's so easy to, I want to make more money next year. I need people to do this. And hire people that have experience doing it. And hopefully, we'll make some more money mm. versus this is what I want to accomplish before I die. I need help. Let's find the people who have the talent, skill, mindset, and motivation who also want to to accomplish this. And then I'm going to do everything, everything within my power and then some to make sure that they have all the tools, resources, training, support, love, care, everything to be as successful as they can humanly be. You've touched on the single most important question I have learned to ask. It's not what, why, when, it's who. Who can I turn to? Who can I get help from? Who can I ask? And this podcast, for example, the last two years has been the most incredible uh, journey for me because I've been able to go out and speak to the best in the world in their field and learn from them. And you know, this recruitment process is an evolution of 200 conversations with people and uh, getting their insights, learning from their lessons of scar tissue. You know, I, I cannot stress enough, if you are starting out in your career, always ask yourself the question, who has the answer? And who can I turn to and ask for help? Go out and find people whose history is your future and ask them to be your mentor with the following contract. Travis. I'd like you to be my mentor, and you're welcome to say no. Let me tell you what my conditions are. I'm looking for 20 minutes a month, and I always promise to come prepared. And once we have agreed a course of action, I commit 100% that I will go out and attempt to implement it. I will never come to you with excuses, and I will never come unprepared. And if I do, you can fire me. Would you be willing to give me 20 minutes a month to help me advance my career? I I love that. Yes. All the time. I think that's fantastic. And that's, I think you might have touched on something that is the the truest gift of a great leader is knowing they need help. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed uh, Tom Shodorf, um, who took Splunk from 42 million to 1.2 billion. 
in five years. And one of the most impressive things that came out of that conversation was his willingness to be coached. Uh, you know, he said, you know, if someone can help me, I'll take the coaching. And uh, he you know, proactively looks for people who can help and coach him. Now, this is a guy who is right at the top of his game. Everyone I've ever spoken to who worked in his organization love him. Yeah, he helped them become really successful. He was a great leader, incredibly fair, um, but above all, humility. That intellectual humility that recognized that I can't do this alone. Um, and there's always other people around me and surrounded himself with people. And they used to have stand-up fights. And um, you know, they'd fight constantly about important stuff, but it was constructive conflict. That willingness, that uh, vulnerability, it's just a joy to see it in people. We've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this, what are you struggling with at the moment? <laughs> the thing that I think we're struggling with the most is, is we're still all working remote. And the biggest struggle for us, and I am blessed to be surrounded by a tremendous team of people who are dedicated to doing their best work. And so we have not taken as much of a hit as a lot of companies similar to ours this year. And that is a true testament to the tremendous people that have chosen to work at Miller Resource Group. But we're missing the creative, spontaneous energy. We're missing the camaraderie. And there's still some of it. We're still on Zoom calls all the time with each other. But the the in-the-moment opportunities. And I really feel for our newest people. We've brought a couple people on board uh, since March. And I really feel for them because their ability to hear their coworkers in the moment, hear the conversations that they have, building the relationships, that's, that's our biggest struggle. And we're working through it. We're doing okay. There have, we've, we've learned a lot of things. There are some things that we're going to come out of this doing significantly better. But our biggest struggle is the unplanned moments. Yeah, that's tough. Because of time, we're going to have to move on. But um, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back in time and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What one bit of advice would you tell 23-year-old Travis that you know he'd probably ignore, but he would have really <laughs> valued and benefited from? Fail harder, fail faster. Pick yourself back up and learn from it, idiot. Good, really good advice. How can people get a hold of you? I'm all over the place. LinkedIn is probably the easiest place to get a hold of me. Uh, hang out there an awful lot. Travis Miller, Miller Resource Group. Email me at travism at millerresource.com. Those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. Travis Miller, thank you. Marcus, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me on LinkedIn. If you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please connect us either via LinkedIn or email. In the meantime, stay safe, happy recruiting, and happy selling. Bye-bye.